0: You're listening to the Perfect Man Podcast. I'm your host Andre Kirk, Sparky, canine connoisseur and mental health advocate. Hello friends and strangers. Today I invite Pat Stewart on the podcast, father, husband, dog training coach and former Australian Special Forces Commando. How's it going, mate?
1: Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me.
0: All good. Thanks for coming on, mate. Dedicating your time. I know Bit of stuff on close to Christmas. So yeah, really appreciate
1: it. Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. I'd love to start. Uh, What do you do for work and what do you do for fun?
1: Uh, That's a great question. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you could call my work work. Uh, So like I'm a, I guess I'm a dog trainer, uh, but I don't train that many dogs anymore. Mostly train people to do that. Um, So I sort of call myself a a coach. I suppose I am. I kind of... um, it's a tricky term, a coach, because I, then I kind of think of like life coaches and, you know, how notoriously bad they all are. And so I, I don't want to get into that sort of pile. But essentially what I do is I, I help people achieve stuff with their dogs. And, and the type of dog training is not any more sort of just the average pet dog stuff. Like I, I tend not to sort of be the guy you get into your home. If a dog's pulling on the lead or barking at people or whatever, I'm the guy you get around when you're trying to squeeze a couple of extra points out of the competition that you're competing in or whatever. And so, um, Mostly I do that and and, and I, I do that. I travel the world teaching that kind of stuff, sort of upskilling, um, you know, at the minimum dog training enthusiasts or other dog trainers, as well as I still work pretty heavily with, um, you know, mostly police and military type units doing that sort of training, like, you know, helping them squeeze the most out of their working dogs.
0: Yeah. Um, and so you'd class that as fun basically, and you get paid to do it. Yeah,
1: well, that kind of is my fun. So, yeah. uh, you know, it started for me as a hobby. I, when I was in the Army, before we even had dogs in my unit, it, dog training for me was a, a hobby and a passion. Uh, and I, I took a pretty bad injury in 2011. And and when I left the Army because of that injury in 2015, that's when I sort of was like, yeah, I think that this is a thing people can do for a job. Uh, yeah, <laughs> And so yeah. so did. I got a lot of other sort of passions. I'm into, you know, lots of different things. Uh, and and over the you know, I think like most sort of independent business people, people who work for themselves. I've had to become a content creator and a, a social media guy and a marketer and a salesman and all the things you have to be if you're gonna you know be successful by yourself. So those, um, I'm I'm lucky in that I've for the most of the things that I do for fun, I've rolled into getting paid for. Probably the only thing I do for fun that I don't sort of. Uh, do for work is you know strength training that kind of thing Um, i'm hot and cold on that that sort of stuff and i wouldn't dream of i wouldn't dream of trying to teach anybody else that i'm very much a a beginner and have been for 20 years at all of that
0: yeah and backing up a bit i've heard you say before you accidentally joined the army um because it seemed like a lot of fun but how the hell did you end up in special forces
1: mate it's a weird story so uh, I did army cadets when I was a kid and, uh, just kind of enjoyed that, but that was just something fun to do with, with friends on the weekend. It was like a reason to go camping and stuff like that. And, uh, one of my closest friends I did that with, he joined the army straight out of school and another one who I was, you know, very close friends with. We, I've known him since we were 12 years old. We went to the same high school together. He wanted to join the army, but he's dyslexic. And when he, you know, the, the education department basically let him down because what happened was he's he was told that, you know, because you have a disability, you'll be supported. And so in all of his exams and everything, he had a reader and a writer. So someone else would do those things for him and then he would do his tests and whatever, like based on his knowledge, not his ability to read because they said, hey, you can't read, you're dyslexic. So that's all cool until he goes to join the army and then the army that he didn't tell the army he's dyslexic. He just turns up and does what the army at the time called the gas score, which is like an aptitude test. And they told him that he was too stupid to join anything. They're like, (laughs) you, you can't, there isn't a place for you in the army. Uh, And it turns out that uh, it was just that it's an online, uh, you know, back then it was uh, on a computer. You go to them and it's just like a, an aptitude test, but he couldn't, He's a very intelligent guy, but he couldn't read enough of the questions to pass enough of them to, in order to get a decent enough score. So, uh, they tell him he can reapply in six months. So in six months, he does what – now that he has actual drive and motivation to do it, he teaches himself to read. He finds a way to get through his dyslexia. And, you know, he's still dyslexic. He still struggles, but he finds a way to get through that and does that in six months, and then he goes back and scores so highly that he can now do any job he wants in the army, right? That's awesome. So this was back in 2002 or 2001, one of those. Anyway, and so, you know, the internet – wasn't what it is now, and so he moved, and he was going to join the army, and he had to go back to recruiting in order to tell them his new address. And I gave him a lift there, and so he goes into the he goes into the the thing, whatever he's doing. And I'm talking to this chick that's the recruiter, and next thing I know, I'm in the army, and and she it just sort of they said, oh, you know, your mate uh, is going in on this pilot program because he got such a high aptitude test and everything else. He's done his psych test and everything. And uh, he's going in on this pilot program, what later became, it was referred to as the direct recruiting to special forces, the DRS. And so what happened was two commando regiment, it was it was called 4 R at the time, had been directed, you know, the Iraq war was kind of getting going and um, they had been directed to raise another company. So that's like another sort of 80 commandos, which is not an easy thing to do. Like coming up with another 80 guys that, that you know, you guys are so on a selection like course, one of one of one of one. How the yeah. So like on happen? a selection course. Um, well, let me get to that right. So basically, they had to figure out a way. How do we get more guys into special forces? And so instead, it used to be that you had to join the army, be in for twelve months, and then you could apply to go to special forces. And what they realized was that um, people don't because they get kind of comfortable where they are and they like their job that they do and wherever it is in the army. And and then it's not fair to sort of recruit so heavily from the infantry because then he's stealing people from the infantry. And and so what they decided was to recruit directly from the street. And so they they realized – Uh, we can get people with the right, uh, psych profile. We can bring forward the psych testing on that and, and put that early and then we can put them straight through. And so for me, I fit into that. And so what ended up happening was I, you know, my crew, we went to Kapuka, which is like basic training, you know, you're six or 12 weeks whatever it is there now, then to the school of infantry. Uh, so then normally you would then go on to like uh, one of the battalions. But for us, we then did this like six week, they call it an AI team advanced infantry training course and that was meant to simulate 12 months being in one of the battalions so give you the experience that you would get in that 12 months that you were meant to be in and then it was straight on to selection good luck boom you're on (laughs) and so uh of the guys that we started there were 48 of us that started and three of us nearly two years later like got our like became commandos on the original trajectory a few others i think eight others like caught up because they were injured along the way um, but three of us got through start to finish and they considered that a pretty big success to get three people from the street straight in and, just, and then have eight catch up. So it's now a regular program. They run it every year. Um, and the majority of the unit actually came in via that. Well, I don't know if it's the majority, but a lot of the unit actually came in via that. And so I was on the pilot program for that. There's only one guy left in from that original pilot yeah, okay. program, but he's a warrant officer now, yep. you know, like he's one of the CSMs of the, of one of the companies. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, it's a tricky one. Like with that unit, with selection, I end up doing two years at this, um, at the school, select like selecting and training guys for service in special forces into commando.
0: Okay.
1: And, um, you know, the way it works is you might get sort of 500 people apply and they sit for what's called a paper board where they just go through people's record and sort of go like, uh, yes or no. And, what and what kind about, of things are um, they crossing up? Are you able to disclose? Uh, anything, like or? if you have like hardcore discipline issues oh, okay. or a lot of people, um, like one of the things that happened when three RAR were in Sydney and got moved to Townsville, a lot of the guys just didn't want to move to Townsville. So they, okay. they, they like, Oh, I'll have a crack at special forces because I get to stay in Sydney. And it's like, that's not a good reason to apply. <laughs> um, so you, you might get sort of, you know, three to 500 people apply of that. They all allow about 180 people to start of those starters about 120 will actually turn up because a volunteer course. So like you can just not turn up, right? You can just pull the pin yeah. and then at any minute you can pull out along the way. So of that 120, usually about 30 to 40 will finish. Um, of that, you know, maybe 25 to 30 will pass and then that's just like a six-week course. And then they go on to uh, like the, what's called your reinforcement cycle, which is like another 18 months of training. And so of that, then you'll end up with sort of 15 to 20 people like actually, you know, be- enter the unit and begin okay. service within the unit. Yeah. So it's a pretty narrow funnel um, that yeah, people go through. Okay. And it's quite hard. It, what's funny for me though you know, now as like a 39-year-old I man, I did it when I was 19, right? So like I was just dumb and everything was easy and i actually found the whole thing you know like because i joined the army and it was basic training and then it was infantry training and then it, like my life was just shit and and that was life and so yeah. so yeah. now like it was i found selection course quite easy and i was talking to other guys who were like from the bigger army and they were like oh you know sick of getting yelled at and all this and i was like man this is what the army is to me yeah, like oh, this yeah. is this is wednesday this is no big deal yeah
0: how do you I look it's at it now be any other way
1: Oh mate, if you even if you put me into my nineteen-year-old body, there's no way I could pass selection now because like people will yell at me and I'll be like, "Oh fuck off, mate! I'm not <laughs> like calm yeah, down! Yeah, I'm not doing that." Yeah. Um. Uh, so, so yeah. Anyway, that's that's sort of how I ended up I yeah. ended up in there.
0: And along with the physical tests, what kind of uh, mental personalities are they looking for? And yeah, what are those? So, what are those types that actually become successful?
1: Yeah. So one of the the main thing that they sort of talk about within the special forces community, it really doesn't matter whether it's here. There's two units like there's SAS and two commando here. Okay. Um, But it doesn't matter whether you're talking about them or, or any around the world. The, the key thing really is toughness, right. Of yeah. over, you know, toughness over fitness. Um, Yeah. The reason like it's a very physically difficult and demanding job, but the reason people try and get so fit is because like you on selection, they will break you. Yeah. And, and the lot, the, the longer you can hold that off the better. Whereas for me, like I was never that fit. I was, I was broken at the kit check, you know, like okay. they, we like, like hour one. And then what happens is the veil comes down and we get to see a real personality. Mm. Right. Because like when you haven't eaten in three days and you haven't slept and you like, you can't pretend to be who you're not. And we get yep. to see what you're really like. Mm. And so the attribute that that's probably the key attribute is toughness, like the ability yeah. to endure hardship. And then it's the ability to sort of work as a team, work in team environments, but also sort of stay mission focused as well. That's one of the key things is that, um, yes, you need guys who know how to work as a team, but you also need guys that know when to ditch the team because the mission becomes more important and, and, and just little things like that along the way. What I think would be heartbreaking and I've seen it happen to people is that they get to the end of selection and then don't get selected. And like, it's just, and the feedback then is just like, Hey, you, you did it. Congratulations. You didn't pull off and you physically endured it and you passed all the tests. We just don't like you. really." <laughs> and so wow. and it's just like because i just can't imagine us having to work with you you know what yeah, i mean like yeah. you, you you've, you've proven that you can do all the things mm. but i just don't want you and and the way it works like when i was at the school you go to the school as like a um either a junior or a senior corporal and so you'll come back like for me i went as a junior corporal and so the guys that i was selecting and training were then in my team so i was their team commander so yeah, right. there's like a So I spent, you know, two years training these guys. And then like, when I go back to the unit, it's, we work in six man teams. Two of them are going to be in my team and, and, and I don't know which two. So like even the process of the selection course is very tricky because you have to be really mean to these people and and attempt to break them, but in a really fair way where they will forgive you. Right. And, and, and understand. Stand that you were just putting them you were getting rid of the people who weren't suitable you weren't doing yeah. anything personal to them so it's a, it's a really tricky fine line to walk
0: yeah it's, it sounds very specific to who actually turns up in the group right like you're of course yeah so it's not just about um 100 out of 100 you it's
1: nah and and i think you you sort of it's i think most so like most sort of modern special forces was built off of like the british sas in world war ii and um, a guy called David Sterling and he sort of had to build a team to go on a mission. And that sort of is what evolved into being modern special forces. And I think what ended up happening was he had a particular personality type and he just chose people that were similar to him. Mm. And that's what's, perpetuated throughout special forces units around the world because you don't just start one. So like, for example, when, when my unit was raised in the, in the nineties, it was the SAS guys that raised it. Right. So they got brought over and a bunch of them were put in charge of raising this unit. And the same has happened. We have helped other nations develop special forces. units, like where you send guys over and they pick and whatever. So rightly or wrongly, I don't know whether it's they, it's the right way or not is that you just pick the type of people you want to work with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so we're just yeah. reinforcing the stereotype over and over and over. <laughs> uh, so there might be a better personality type. There might be a better uh, you know type of person that would go yeah. into those units, but we'll yeah, never yeah, we'll know never because know. Mm. no, we'll never know unless you start one from scratch, which yeah. is just never going to happen. Yeah.
0: And after uh, multiple deployments, uh, what, w- what would you say would be the biggest learnings that you uh, were able to translate back into civil life?
1: Um, mate, I think uh, it's a hard one. Like, so for me, none of the sort of actual skills, like hard skills that I learned in the army, are very transferable at all, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, and but it's the life warf-
0: like warfare. Yeah.
1: Basically, so man. I mean, like, you know, running a gun. Like, I was exceptional at that, and I've I'm undefeated in every gunfight I've ever been in. But that's not it's not very useful to me now uh and and a lot of the like sort of hard skills like things you actually learn how to do it you know whether it's like room combat or parachuting or working with explosives all those kinds of things like i just don't have any cause to do any of that since i left the army so i don't use any of those hard skills but what i think the main things i use is the sort of uh interpersonal skills with people And, and the, this, the way that I talk to people, the way that, uh, you know, leadership works, I've been pretty outspoken about this and I've gotten myself in trouble, but I'll, I'll continue to say it is I don't think that the army actually creates very good leaders. I think that it selects for them. So like, you know, I've done all of the leadership courses that the army had to offer me at my rank and education level. And none of them were, I did, I really learned very much what I, what I, cause it, it's just bullshit you know like it's you're ticking the boxes but what i think the army is full of incredible leaders but i think it selects for them i don't think it it, it okay. makes them
0: oh yes and i do.
1: feel that way about leadership i think that you can go from bad to okay, okay and you can go from from really really good to exceptional but you can only learn a little bit you know, like I think that for the most part, that's a trait that you either have or you don't. Yeah. But the, yeah. the styles that you can implement is what I think I learned in the army. And I had some challenging leadership sort of roles. Like at one point I was the sniper platoon sergeant. And so that's a like snipers are notoriously difficult people to work with sort of regardless okay. and then to put them all into a platoon. And so these are people who are, you know, a special forces sniper platoon is a bunch of guys who have been uh, selected for being exceptional at their their skill and they are also selected for people who don't necessarily play very well with others and want to work alone yeah. and now i have to get 12 of them sorry 24 of them to work cohesively as a team mm, and, and listen to <laughs> and,
0: you
1: yeah so like you know little things like that that's the sort of Um, they're the skills that I left the army with is learning how to manage people under, you know, extreme levels of stress and Mm. how to guide the ship rather than sort of, you know, as a leader, especially in a situation like that, you have to sort of just convince people that doing the right thing or doing what you need them to do is their idea. And they were going to do it anyway. And and just sort of nudge them rather than just demand it
0: Yeah, Yeah, because,
1: like it's still the army, there's still discipline, but in those kind of units, people don't mind telling people to go fuck themselves, you know? And yeah, so, yeah. oh shit, I hope I can swear on your show. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so, you know, like that's, that's the sort of skills that I got from the army is dealing with, with people. But then the biggest challenge I found leaving the army was also the same in that I joined when I was 19 and I, you know, was in for 12 years, 12 and a half years and had really was the only job I really ever did. And they were the only people I really hung out with. All my closest friends yeah, were in the okay. army and, and uh, you know, I'd never had any business or anything outside the army. And what I found the most difficult was uh, not being able to rely on people. like I could in the army. So like yeah. the, those interpersonal skills, like you know, you just say, Hey, I'm going to do this and people just do it. Right. Mm. And, and, and being, being able to delegate in, and just knowing that people would do it, I don't have to follow up, but I don't have to check whether you're going to do it. If I say to do it, you're going to do it because yeah. not just because I'm the boss and I say so, but because we're all on the same mission, we're all yeah, working yeah. towards the same thing. And that's what I found leaving that that's not the case everywhere, mm. right? Like that's not the case in in industry and that's not the case um, in just even normal personal relationships. You that's, know?
0: Yeah, that's right. Did you fall into any typical nine to five jobs post army that you were
1: like, no, this is nah. fucked? no. Nah. Nah. So I've never had a job until this year. So I, uh, I did some contracting and, and, but mostly I just started dog training for myself. I did a lot Mm. of pet stuff when I first left. I've contracted to other government agencies and do bits and pieces and done, um, you know, just sort of like parallel to the army type activities for other government agencies for a little while. Um, but you know, I've never had a nine to five until just earlier in this year. It's the first time I had one. I didn't last long. I only lasted about six months. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, h- yeah.
0: how did you get into dogs and what led into owning, operating, operant k
1: Yeah, mate. So uh, I, in, on a deployment in 2008, I saw my first military working dog and um, just kind of got the bug. And we didn't have him. It was an American dog that I, I worked with. And we didn't have him in, in my unit. And so I came back and me and others, I wasn't even a pivotal role in it, but people started sort of, you know, demanding like hey we should have dogs in our unit we've we've seen the force multiplier that it brings yeah. I, and then for me i i work so closely with this dog that i i really got um just bitten by the bug of training and i wanted to learn more about dog training and i didn't have a dog at the or i did have a dog my wife had this old border collie who was like 15 and couldn't do anything so I just became sort of a theory obsessed and, mm. and really started sort of digesting it all. And, you know, it was just a hobby. I'm, I'm a little bit of an obsessive reach researcher. So yep. when I get, you know, when something gets under my skin, I just have to know everything about yeah, it. I
0: feel the same. So I started
1: doing that and sort of digesting everything that I could. And then eventually got my own dog and really got into the idea of dog sports and mm. uh, was really into the European dog sports. And um, so then by the time dogs came into my unit in 2012, that's when I was the sniper platoon sergeant. So I wanted to, you know, I immediately was like, Hey, I'm, I'm dish all this. I'm going to dogs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how how, did, you, else, how did you
0: source these dogs?
1: Uh, well, so I didn't like, so we brought in a guy who later became my business partner, a guy called Sam Montany. And he was a, he was a military policeman and the military police, you know, obviously they've got dogs and he was like a third generation, you know, military working dog handler he's born in Belgium so his job he got brought in to raise that dog capability within Two commando and so um he went to the because there was an existing contract with a a provider he had to go to to the states and buy them there and um bought them and they got they got they they had someone look after them while they were in quarantine and they got brought into Australia and yeah there was there was some teething issues with that but but almost all not not exclusively but most of the dogs at the kennel currently are all imports they they, they'll they'll buy a dog if there's a good one around but for the most part they they import them from from europe yeah um and so that for me like i just got the bug in that regard and then when i i was on the peripheries of the the dog cell as it was coming in so i sort of acted as a as a platoon sergeant to them in a way like was sort of assisting in doing it and i never did the course at at the unit i never um was a dog handler like that was never my role But I was assisting in the training of them and that kind of stuff and um, just kind of became obsessed with it and and started training dogs on my own time, sort of helping people, you know, just like there's that guy in the community that knows how to train dogs and would, you know, go to the dog park and see problems with people's dogs and offer to fix it. And so I trained quite a lot of dogs before I was a dog trainer, just as like, I I just enjoy doing it and I'll come around and I wasn't charging people or anything. And then it was when I realized like, yeah, when I realized I had to leave the army, I was like, oh, okay. Like I could do that. And that mm. uh, there's been a few iterations, you know, like I've tried different things in the dog space before I eventually found my feet. And and I got really lucky. Like, um, you know, podcasts, uh, everyone's got one now. Right. That's and right. here we are, but mine, uh, it's called the Canon paradigm. I do it with my friend, Glenn Cook. We were early to the space. And so we have like a pretty large following there. Yeah. And yeah. for me, you like, guys I had really good
0: 2017. Yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 And so we were one of the early dog ones. There was other ones around, but we were one of the early ones in that and, and remain one of the more popular sort of ones or the more, you know, more listened to. Oh, and yeah, so, definitely. uh, that sort of springboarded me into the dog space a little bit. Like people then started to know me and realize that, uh, what I had to offer was of value. Mm. You know, I'm lucky if I hadn't have done that, you know, I would still just be training pet dogs in their local area, you know, like yeah. I, which is what I did for years. Mm. Um, but, you know, doing that allowed me to a bigger audience and really turned me into more of an educator and a content creator than I am a dog trainer. So, like, I still train dogs. I still train plenty of dogs. But um, for the most part, I am just teaching other people what to do with their dogs.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And how uh, – speaking on alternative mindsets to um, motivation and, you know, intrinsic desires – how did you how did you know that you were gonna um you know t- take it up as a job and 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 did well, like, well, well, choosing choosing to to train the people over dogs yeah you know
1: I mean? well mate see so what happened with me um i was i was gonna be in the army forever I had no intention of getting out and um it i I was, you know, what, what we call a lifer. And then when I broke my back in 2011, um, I, I, I kind of, it took me a long time to realize first of all, what, that I was even that badly injured. And then it took me a little while to sort of come to terms with the fact that I would have to leave the army. And I was put on what's called a critical skills waiver where like I should have been kicked out straight away, but because of my rank and the things that I could do, the, the CO basically every year had to sign off on saying like, no, keep him. We want him to stay and we will employ him within his restrictions. Right. Like, so he can set himself, uh, like he'll tell us what he can and can't do yeah, okay. and we'll continue to employ him the, uh, so long as he wants. And so I was doing that, but the the, the area that I kind of specialized in in the army was sort of low profile stuff. And I, I actually have no love for that. Like, surveillance and shit like, that. like it's just not my thing i'm, I'm good at it but i yeah. don't enjoy it even in the slightest and so uh doing that for the remainder of my life just didn't didn't strike me as something i wanted to do and i realized i was gonna have to leave the army like i couldn't be promoted it was it was gonna have to happen so i stayed oh, okay. for four years and i was very lucky that they kept me they let me stay for that four years yeah. and be employed and and you know i worked a lot It was not like i wasn't working yeah. I, I provided value to the service but yeah. um when i realized it was time to go I really, you know, which was probably sort of 2013, I, I didn't know what to do. Like I, I really hit a wall and I kind of suffered a little bit in science because I didn't have anyone to bounce this off of. I didn't, there there probably is support mechanisms in place for this, that I didn't take them up or I didn't, wasn't aware of them, whatever. And like, I, I really, since I was 19, I was in the army and it kind of occurred to me that I don't actually know who I am if I'm not that. And and and. I don't want to leave. Like I have no, I I want to continue. I want, I have career goals. I want to do all these things, but beyond my career goals, I was like, I actually don't know who the fuck I am because I have been this and like, I, this is the box that I got put into, uh, joined the army by accident, ended up in this unit like by accident. And, uh, know, So I, as an adult have never, um, had to think about what, who am I? Because I'm that. And so it was hard. Like it was really hard. It was, it was for me, I had to sort of essentially reinvent myself. I had yeah. to become a whole new person. Um. And, and like, could you, say to me, I kind age, of,
0: could you say what age you really thought I know what I'm doing?
1: Never. <laughs> I still yeah. don't. Right. So or, or more probably, so, it,
0: you know what you want to do. Sorry.
1: Is yeah. I mean. So like, yeah. I think for me, it was, uh, I'd say in 2019 is when, I really had an epiphany that I'm not actually a dog trainer. I'm a teacher. That's when I, I re- like, and that was when the seminars really kicked off, you know? And so I was, I was in the U S and I was between seminars and I just kind of, um, had this realization that I was like, oh, I'm not actually a dog trainer. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach people and I teach dogs. And at the moment I teach dog training. And, but really that's what I do is I, I teach people. And, and I've kind of always been that, like, and that's when I realized, even when I was in the army, I wasn't that great a digger, you know, like I was okay. Like I was as good as I needed to be. I need, I was as good as everyone else in the unit needs to be. Um, but where I really shone was when I got sent to the school. And no, so probably the first, the first time that I really impressed people and, uh, had a, you know, a, a report that got shown around was when on a deployment I did where I was embedded with the Afghan army and I was the link. So I was basically training them to accompany us on missions. And I got that gig because no one else wanted it. And I, it was just convenient for me to deploy at that time. I was meant to deploy like with a different company as a team leader, uh, like the, the next year, six months later. And it was just more convenient for me in my life to go that one. And so I was like, yeah, let's have that job. No one else wants. And through that I realized I was like, Oh, I'm good at this. And mm. then that deployment was uh wild to say the least. Yeah. And did you have a translator and, as
0: well that was assigned to you to help out here?
1: I, I, I did and he was killed on the third day. <laughs> so okay, was... I had two. So I had I had two uh interpreters and on the third day outside the wire one of them got eviscerated and then the other one quit. And so so it was baptism by fire. <laughs> And so my Pashto got real good, real quick. And, and, and so, and that was challenging in and of itself because the the army guys I work with, uh, were, they spoke Dari, but we were in an area where people speak Pashto. So they don't, they typically don't let the Afghan army guys uh, like police their own areas. So they get them from a totally other separate part of Afghanistan. In, Ga- in Afghanistan, they speak like four languages, right? So yeah, okay. so the guys I was working with day to day couldn't even speak to the locals mm. and, and I couldn't even speak to them. That's why I have two interpreters. And um, anyway, so – uh, that's where I kind of realized I was good at teaching. And then after yeah. that deployment is when I got sent to the school. And so it was 2009 and 10, I was at the school for two years, just training guys. And that's sort of when I realized I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, where I'm was really that good at this. Again? Uh, in Sydney still. Yeah. So yeah. I was just, uh, at the, it's called the special forces training center. It's called SOP or something. Now that I changed the name of it, they gave it some mm. new acronym. That's what the army loves to do. Yeah. Um, but so then, you know, that was my last time, like as a digger. So I, I I went to the school and came back as a, as a pretty senior corporal. And so you come back into leadership roles and then it was, you know, less of a doer, more of a trainer and a sort of organizer of things. And Mm. that's when I sort of realized, I was like, ah, this is what I'm actually good at. Right. Like there's people who are better than me on the tools, but I'm pretty good at the management of those people.
0: Yeah. Okay. And within the army or even in the uh, dog community, did you have some mentors that you were looking up to or, in, yeah, in contact with yeah as well. for sure yeah
1: so like i've been super lucky um that i've had incredible mentors my whole life i've, I've and i've fallen into the you know like there's, there's i put work into it for sure mm-hmm. but I've, there's a huge element of luck that i've just been in the right place at the right time many times so while i was in the army i had some incredible mentors i had uh like a you know people i shouldn't say the names of, but people yeah. who like really took me under their wings and you know Rather than just being a number to them, like actually we're like, okay, I, I choose to educate you in this. And there was, you know, like one of the, the, the CSMs that I had, and I had him for a long time, of four years, we, we changed units together. He made me do a bunch of stuff that I just resented him for making me do it. But like, he made me, he made me do the employment training of a clerk. So like when it, when someone's going to join the army and become a clerk and just do the data entry for other people. He made me during this down period that we have do their entire training. And I was like, but I'm not a clerk. I'm not interested in learning this. But yeah, you know, he was like, no, no, you need to know how to do this because yeah, you know, like, first of all, you need to understand the roles of the people who work for you, but also like this allows you this huge amount of freedom. Now you can do all the data entry. yourself. If you're not relying on someone else and blah, blah, blah. So just little things like that. So I was really lucky, not just in like the leadership space and how to actually do my job but how to prepare for my job and how to sort of do it at a level above what you know the normal you know uh teaching would be i've always had someone that was able to do that for me yeah. and then even in the dog space when i linked up with sam initially you know sam's probably the best dogman in the country and he taught me as you know so much and then i've uh, you know I got super lucky in dogs, especially, and basically ended up with Bart Bellin as a mentor who, you know, I know people listening probably don't know much about dogs, but Bart's, you know, arguably one of the best dog trainers alive. And for a long time, Bart was just teaching me dogs and then it totally pivoted and it went to teaching me how to teach people dogs. And, you know, like it, he, you know, was an incredible mentor to me when I started teaching big events, he would... You know, he would call me the night before all of them and it was pep talk and, you know, like all the, all the, all sorts. the sorts of things that, uh, you money can't buy level mentoring, you know, mm-hmm. like it was, he really invested in me. And I, like I say, I've just been incredibly lucky. I can name probably 10 people through my life who have done the same for me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had great parents, like I've just had all the, all the stars of the line for me to, um, be lucky all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I, like I try to provide that to as many people as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, but I think those sorts of things, like I, I don't offer any sort of mentoring programs or anything like that because it, I think that they need to be quite organic. I think, mm-hmm. and 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 the every op- every time that I've ever had that go really well for myself, it was organically just kind of fell into place. And and the people who I've been able to help in in the dog space and and develop in the way that I think they need to be, it's always happenstance how we came together and yeah. um i kind of want to keep it that way it's not like i, I don't want to commercialize that
0: mm. yeah and speaking on bart bellen he's uh he's been le- releasing some awesome free content on his page as well over the last mm. you know six to eight months um whereas before you know the whole nepo pro stuff is very tight-lipped and definitely got a pay-to-play mm. For a good reason very good reason mm-hmm. um but I, I i love some of his sayings that he say, says and yeah, you can yeah. actually use them in other aspects of life as well or you know it makes sense so yeah you know his his arguably most famous one would be come kissing come fucking now to people yeah, from, who are listening, from
1: kissing from kissing comes fucking okay yeah, yeah.
0: and to yeah. people who um are listening who aren't that into dogs you probably go like, what the hell is, is this one about? <laughs> but um, I'm going to, I'm going to let you have, to, you're going to have to look, look at, look that up for yourselves. But yeah. um, also uh, must stay unfucked, which is very yeah. true.
1: It's definitely. unfucked. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing <laughs> about know, Bart, what? Bart speaks five languages, right? Wow. Um, and so he, he's Flemish. So he's, he, he he's born in a, in Belgium, but in a Flemish area of Belgium, you know, so they speak two languages in Flemish, like in Belgium, there's the French speaking areas and the Flemish speaking areas. And so Bart is Flemish. So he's, he, that's his first language, but then he grew up in Africa. His father actually wrote the constitution for West Africa. And so he grew up in Africa. So he speaks Swahili as a second, as his second language. Um, Then when they went back to Belgium, they moved to, uh, Uh, like a more of a French area. So he then had to learn French and then uh, he learned English because he was, you know, more of a trade language and was able to do that. But then there were a lot of work opportunities for him pre dogs in Germany. So he's, he had to learn to speak German. And so uh, English is actually fourth of his five languages. And so he, he sometimes, you know, uh, he says these things that it sometimes come across as broken English, Mm. but and so you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, he doesn't speak English well. He speaks English perfectly, but they're they're like you know little pearls of wisdom yeah, that definitely. he's digested down into just as few words as possible. Yeah. There was there was one when I posted a photo of my dog who you know had achieved something at the time. I don't even remember what. And and uh, Bart commented on it that time takes time, and he just wrote time takes time. And I remember like I laughed and was like, no, oh, Bart, kind of like. That doesn't make any sense. And then the I've repeated that so, so many times and it turns out it's one of the wisest things I've ever heard, you know, because mm. it's just like, it's going to take the time that it takes. You can't speed it up. Time yeah. takes time. There's nothing that can be done about it. Yeah. Um. And, you know, he, in three words, did a better job of explaining something that uh, I can't do in a whole sentence, you know? Mm.
0: Surely knowing that many languages would open up pathways to that, uh, you know, has created, uh, as Nepo Po because there's there's nothing totally. Like it. How, totally, how, can you please explain to the general pop what Nepo Po is?
1: Yeah, so it, it Nepo Po like the word Bart owns right, and yep. and it kind of he he doesn't own the training style. He owns the word, but he you know popularized the idea of training in in. Negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. Mm. So what would had happened, sort of for the most part in the dog training world, is that uh, it used to be that we dogs were taught and animals for the most part were taught for the most mostly using negative reinforcement, whereby you create some level of discomfort and through through displaying a behaviour, the dog turns off that discomfort. So a lot of the old school kind of yank and crank training, that's what it is, right? It's like basically forcing the dogs to do things. Yeah, and then. You know, in the yeah, 80s and 90s, uh, the positive reinforcement, you know, really showed its head and, and the effects it could have. And that came from us mostly from the marine mammal trainers. Like we, yeah. as dog trainers, we saw dolphin trainers doing things with dolphins. And we're like, how did you force the dolphin to do that? And it's like, well, we didn't force it. We we, yeah. we shaped it and we we yeah. incrementally built behavior and we, we paid the dolphin. And so dog training took like a weird, very strong twist towards that you know, dogs aren't dolphins and there's a reliability piece that we need from dogs that we don't need from dolphins. And so Bart's system, Nipopo is the fusion of the two. And it's like, it's, it's the selective use of positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement to really maximize motivation and understanding for the dog. Mm. Now, like Bart will even tell you that he, you know, he didn't invent it. There's, there's the Nipopo logo is the dancing bear. Right. Um, And, Part of the teaching is, you know, Russian gypsies have been using Nepopo to train bears for 300 years. It's not something new. It is just a really like understanding the animal and getting in tune with it and maximizing its motivation. But doing that in a way where you, at the end of the day, can say to the animal, like, hey, I know you like this, you'll enjoy doing it and we'll have a good time doing it, but you also have to do it. Yeah. And and they accept the have to because they're like, "Ah, oh, well, I like it. I, I do, I enjoy doing it 99% of the time. And the yeah. one time that you then say, Hey, but you have to, even though you don't want to, they're like, Oh, okay, fair enough. Right. Like yeah, let's go yeah. along with it. And yeah. that's where the reliability still piece a learning
0: comes phase in. and stuff like that. To yeah, bring in totally. Yeah.
1: So it's, yeah, that's the overwhelming simplification mm. of it. But the main thing about it is, is like Nipopo is a very fair system in that it, uh, it preps the dog for the day when you say to him, Hey, but you have to, and, and, and in the working roles that day will always come. There's some opposition to it, especially because, you know, we use prong collars and electric collars and all that kind of stuff. And there's people that don't don't think that you should compel a dog in any way, shape Mm. or form. And I think that's fair for them, you know, but they don't have the type of dogs that we have. And they, they also don't put dogs into service. So you're one of the things, you know, tracking is a particularly difficult thing to force a dog to do. and, and, it, you know, if you just compete in tracking competitions and you turn up one day and the dog says, Hey, I don't feel like it today. No worries. You just fail. Mm. But if you have a, a missing autistic seven-year-old kid and your dog turns up and is meant to go track him and the dog says, Hey, I don't want to today. That's the day where you say, Hey, you're fucking doing it. Right? right? Like, yeah. and, and you won't be able to compel that dog to do that thing unless you have prepared him for that prior mm. and so that's that's the whole system that's yeah. how it works do you think it's suitable for pet dogs yeah for sure so like i think the the main thing about it's suitable for all dogs mm. because it, it's very flexible in that like if if the dog doesn't need any of the nepo then you don't have to that's the thing about nepo pose it's a very flexible system that you have to maintain a balance within it and 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 like within the dog training space we we have the idea of like balance trainers and th- that's exactly what it's meant to be is balance. Yeah. Like people have this idea that like you're, if you're a force free or you're a positive only dog trainer, then that's all you use, which is true. Mm. And if you're a balanced trainer, then somehow that's developed the meaning of that you're yank and crank. And yeah. the whole point of like balanced training is it's like, I will provide the right thing, whatever that is. Mm. You know, the, the big part of the teaching of that movie bark. And there's this part in it where he explains that, um, you know, he's a, a horse guy and he explains that some, some horses lives have been all cream and it's time to stir in some shit. Mm. And some other horses lives have been all shit. And so it's time to stir in some cream. And so yeah. that's the way we look at things is it's like, we're trying to achieve balance, some sort of harmony um, and, and like a homeostasis with the dog where the dog is very level and capable. And yeah. so yes, Nipopo is suitable for all dogs because it, it can be adapted to suit the dog. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um. And I think the main thing with like teaching in that way, it's the way that most like good like it. It's one of the reasons I took to Nepo so well is because it turns out the army's been using it forever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and with it, again without calling it that, but it's the way we train. Mm. And the beauty of it is that it's very it's just the clear when you're in three right. days. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. But I mean, even the original development of Nipo Po, Bartle explained that like, that's how it kind of came to be is that it was like all the obedience. Yeah. He's a Belgian ring guy where they do the obedience, the jumps and then the the bite work. And so the Nipo was all the obedience. Yeah. The second pose, the jumps, cause the dog like, ah, you know, this is fine. Like I don't mind. And then the last pose, the bite work. So the yeah. dogs just endure the rest of it to get to the, the end. Mm. But I think that the main thing of why it works so well as a dog training system is the clarity that it gives because it's negative reinforcement into a behavior. Then it's positive reinforcement out of the behavior. And so when you're doing the right thing, it's abundantly clear where when you're just using one of those things, it can be a little bit tricky. Like if you're using negative reinforcement, yes, you'll know when the behavior is correct, but it can be hard to know when to leave it. Mm. And if you're just using positive reinforcement, you know when you were correct, but it's hard to know exactly what the steps prior to that were. So mm-hmm. you kind of just like NepoPo allows you to put bookends to either side of the, the correct behavior and it becomes yep. abundantly clear. And we see that, like you see, especially <laughs> if the dogs are all being trained in like nothing but positive reinforcement, when you bring in the nepo you have to actually be quite careful which behavior you, you bring that in on because mm-hmm. that will become the most clear to the dog. Nothing will ever be so clear to the dog in its whole life as the first time you teach a behavior using Nipopo when it has only used the positive reinforcement. So you have to be kind of careful. Choose choose wisely because that is going to provide the dog a level of comfort and security it's never felt before and the surety of what it yeah. – yes, I'm correct. This is the thing. And we often refer to like, hey, that will turn into the mother language of the dog. And, and when the dog's confused, that's what it will do because it, it, it knows doing this has allayed every – it has turned off every negative feeling I've ever had and brought me a positive feeling doing this one behavior. So when I feel something unsure, that's what I'll do. Mm. And so you have to be quite careful, choose wisely, like which is the behavior that you do that Yeah, way.
0: that's right. And do you use any of the activation or ignition uh, aspects into your coaching as well with people?
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure I do. And And like a big part of it for me, you know, is we talk about in dog training that, motivation is the most important thing and and motivation has to be like intrinsic and, and there's ways to draw that out, but it has to come from the dog itself. The dog has to really want to be a part of it. And we do that via, you know, by using food and, and by, by building the value of the game that you'll play with the dog and the ball and the target and all that kind of stuff. Like we build all of that before we teach the dogs any behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a coach and as a, as a teacher of people, that's the first thing it like if, if their motivation to learn isn't there, then like I, I'm not their coach. I'm not going to help them because I, I need that to start. And, and unfortunately that's one of the things like, it's quite easier for us to build that in dogs, right? Like it, because I've got the dog and now I have to find out what motivates you. How do I, well, how do I push the buttons as you like them to be pushed? But when a student, a human student comes to us, like if they're like, you know, one of the things I see is, yeah, just recently I uh, put up that I'm going to do this free decoy training school. I'm going to teach people decoy for free, right? Come to this place. I'm going to spend the day. I'm going to do it one weekend every month. I'm going to do it. And there's people commenting like, oh, when are you coming to Brisbane to do it? And I'm like, I'm fucking not, mate. Yeah. Like, if you don't, <laughs> if you can't come to me <laughs> to learn this for free. I saw shit ain't getting in my car and driving to you to teach it to you for free. You know what I mean? So that's like that intrinsic motivation to Mm. do, right? Like I want this, I'm going to fight for it. I'm not going to wait for it to be put in my lap. Mm. And I think, you know, I know shows about mental health and if there's still anyone listening, that (laughs) like it's, it's really about, you know, you have to want the help yourself. You that's can't right. force this shit on people. That's why interventions don't work, you know, like mm. people have to, you have to take that first step yourself. You have to be like, I want change. And I think that's the same with any sort of coaching or sort of, you know, being a student is you need to want the knowledge, not sort of be like, okay, I'm here, teach me. It's like, you need people to be like, no, I want it. Give it to me. I'll do whatever it takes to get it. And they're the people that succeed the most. Right. Mm. And And all the people that I've had a lot of success with, they're they're successful in other aspects of their life as well because that's just how they that's how they frame their their thought process it's always around like you know i want an outcome i've set a goal and i'm going to take the action steps to get towards that goal
0: Mm, yeah and how do you how do you balance work life leisure and uh family as well
1: yeah good question that's hard right especially sort of um I suppose you put me in the category of like entrepreneur, right? So like I work for myself and I don't have any um like guaranteed incomes. It's all like odd jobs that I do. Like, you know, I'll have an online course that I have no idea how many of those will ever sell. I do seminars. I have no idea how many people will turn up to those things. You know, so like it's every, my income is never, uh it's, it's, it's fluid. It's always moving around. So that sort of represents... Pretty significant challenges in making sure that your like family needs are met, Mm. like financial needs, as well as then the, you know, the presence and psychological needs and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, For me, it's that I've, you know, I've been lucky. I, 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 I'm financially stable. I have a lot of the the boxes ticked. And, you know, I got paid really well when I was in the army. I made some smart decisions. Yep. Um, so a lot of those sort of, you know, base layer things are taken care of for me as mm. sort of, you know, Maslow one sort of stuff. And yeah. so um, I think the, the most important thing for me is that work uh, remains fun, mm. but also I have to remember also that, like my family is more important than anything else. And, and one thing I've seen like with many people, not so much in the dog training space, but like in life in general is they sort of get obsessed with the idea of providing financially for their family and forget to provide emotionally for their family. And so to me, that's kind of one of the most important things. And mm. I had an incredible childhood, you know, I'm, I'm number four of five and my, you know, my parents weren't rich, but I didn't realize that. Okay. Like I, I, Actually, you know, like we were just sort of, you know, normal middle-class people. Um, and it, it was never – my parents always made time for everything that I ever needed and wanted. And and I think that uh, I try really hard to do the same for my son. And, and my hope would be if you asked my son like how much – my two sons like – One's a baby. He couldn't answer. But, like, if we were rich or poor, they wouldn't have a fucking clue. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's that's what I would mm. want from them is that they know that they're happy. They have what they need. They get what they, they – they they're not spoiled, but they they don't really want for too much. Yeah. But they don't miss me, you know? Like, they're not like dad's never around. Like, yeah, we're killing it. We got this car. We, we got all this cool shit, but we never see him. You know what I mean? Mm. So, balancing that kind of thing is hard, and it just means – you know, from my point of view is that you just have to make some sacrifices. And and as the father and the husband, you sort of have to fall on the sword every now and again. So yeah. for me, that means um, working weird hours. So like I get up at 4am and I get a couple of hours work done or a few hours work done before everybody else gets up. And then, uh, yeah, that allows me to spend time with my family mm. and, and and being non-negotiable on some of those things. Yeah, and and right. like scheduling it as being... Like, no, like sometimes people will say, you know, I'll say, "No, I'm busy, I'm with the kids. And they're like, oh, so like you could do it. I'm like, no, like mm. you're not taking time from my kids. Yeah, that's <laughs>
0: you right. know, yep. like
1: that's like, mm. that is more important. A- and I think one of the things that this gets more and more difficult in this sort of online world, and especially so much of my work is online doing this, is um, being present with people. That's one of the things I try really hard to do, is the people I'm with, I'm with. Uh, and that means that I fall out of contact with people that I'm not around. You know, I'm, I'm terrible at staying in touch with people, Um, you know, which has been difficult over the last few years. Cause a lot of my close friends are overseas. Yeah. And so, you know, it used to be, it'd be fine because, you know, like I would see them once or twice a year and we'd be together for a few days. And so I don't need to be messaging them all the time yeah. be having yeah. those kind of conversations. Yeah. But that's what I try not to do. Like is divide my time, I, you know, in regards to, work, life, family, all that kind of stuff is I try not to be in multiple places at once and Mm. and I allocate time to it so that if I only have four hours a day that I'll spend with my kids, I want that to be like actually four hours with them rather than just checking your phone every second. Yeah, exactly. And so Mm. that's why I, I, you know, I, I have to be kind of strict on that. And it's a challenge. It's a constant challenge because it's a global, yeah, the digital world that we all work in is global. So I've got clients in every time zone. Yeah. Um, a, a, yeah. and there's just challenges you have to face in that, but you have to make those choices. Mm. And I think that I, if I don't like, I don't necessarily have very many career goals and aspirations, like I, everything that I've sort of done, they've just kind of happened. And I kind of, I just take opportunities when I see them and I can just kind of follow my, like, it sounds ridiculous, but yeah. I just kind of follow my heart intuition and, and things have always worked out for me. Right. So yep. like, I'm, I'm lucky in that regards. um, but I do have really strong goals for what I want to achieve with my family. Mm. You know what I mean? So like I, those yeah. are the things that have to be more important. Um, I, I have to, you know, develop my kids to be, you know, who, who they ultimately can be. I have to put in that work that has to be important to mm. me. And that has to take a, if I have the opportunity to, you know, go and speak somewhere and make a bunch of money, but if that's going to negatively impact my family, then like, I just can't take that opportunity. Right. Mm. Like it, it's just, it, and that's my role as the, as the father to then just be like, well, I, I take the hit. Like it's more important that yeah. things go right for them. Mm. than I get some cool opportunity that really is just a big ego move for me. Mm. And, and like, like I say, I say all of that from this incredible point of privilege of yeah. being financially stable. Right. Like I get yeah. that that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. And you've got you've to do created
0: you've got this to do. though for yourself.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I, I put in a lot, I, I work hard and I do yeah. a lot of things, but, I always want to acknowledge how much luck I've had, okay. right? Yep. Like just even being born in this country, yeah, well, absolutely. Being, born, yeah absolutely. being born physically able yeah. in this country puts you above like billions of people, yeah. right? Like that, that, that's, you get to start the race a long way ahead of others yeah. just with that alone.
0: Yeah. I think I was uh, born in New Zealand, but I uh, spent majority of my life in Australia here. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's a great place to be very, very lucky. Yeah. A lot of uh, a lot of my a lot of my generation, the younger younger crowds, Please. they they don't know, they don't know how good they got it. Sorry, you just cut out there.
1: Travelled the world? Oh, you got me. Yeah,
0: you're you back. got me. Sorry, what did you say?
1: Yeah, like having travelled the world and been to all the shitholes. <laughs> tell you, like. Life is pretty amazing here. Mm-hmm. Even if you are the brokest of the broke yeah, here, you are killing it compared yeah. to many many places. Yeah,
0: hundred percent. Chances are you're still probably even able to get you know one hot meal a week, even if it
1: is yeah, you know, exactly. A bit, a
0: bit of a rough life, so yeah, it's, it's pretty good. How uh, how did things change once you had your have your kids, and what kind of challenges did you face as well with your um with your partner and uh, work as well?
1: Yeah. So we, um, we were a bit weird in that we were somewhat indifferent whether we had kids. We were, we were kind of on the fence about whether that was even something we'd do. And what happened to me in, um, in 2006, I was part of a recovery, um, mission in East Timor. So someone got killed in the UN and in Timor and we had to go and secure it. And it was like a super short notice mission. Like I was eating breakfast and Next thing you know, we're like lights and sirens to the airport, private jet to Darwin straight off of that onto a black Hawk, flew one way trip to, um, East Timor, like something from a movie. Mm. And, and like, it's only enough fuel in a black Hawk to get there. It's like, it's, it's, we're not turning around. Right. And we don't know how long we're going to be gone. And, yeah, it, right. it turned out that we just landed and everybody ran away. Like yeah, it, okay. there was, there was no like super exciting thing at the other end. <laughs> it was yep. just a bunch of street gangs that yeah, then right. were like, Oh shit, we didn't buy it. We didn't, we didn't expect this to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, but on that Blackhawk on the way over, it's now sort of like late afternoon and I'm looking around, you know, and this started at, at breakfast that morning and I'm looking in the the helicopter and I'm sort of thinking these guys, like this guy's got kids, this guy's got kids and, and I hadn't even told my then girlfriend uh, that I was going. I was like, she's going to find out on the news, right? Like, and and I was like, cool, who cares, right? Like, she'll be fine. Uh, and I, yeah. I I made the decision that day. I was like, oh, I can't have kids. Like, I was like, that. I can't do that. So, and, and like, my plan was to stay in the army. And so that day in that helicopter, I was like, oh, well, I'm never having kids. And that was like, not a big deal. Like, I was just like, oh, I was kind of indifferent. And now I've made the decision. Mm. And then... When I uh, got injured and realized I had to leave the army, that's when we sort of then had this conversation again. We we're like, oh, we can re-explore that, you know? Like, is that something that we want to do? And we're both like, yeah, like, you, we don't have a reason not to. Yeah, and I yeah, think it's, it's, it's such a yeah. weird position. Because, you know, most people are like, oh, I want kids and blah, blah, blah. Or they're either like hardcore do or don't. Mm. We were just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, see how we go. And then, <laughs> so, um, having kids then... Like, I can't imagine not, like, it's the best decision I've ever made. Yeah. But I, I couldn't understand that at the time. Okay, And so, uh, you know, it, it radically changes your life. Everything changes. You, you're no longer the most important person in your life, right? Like, you no longer make decisions for yourself. And, and I think it can be really hard to even imagine that. You know, like, you can't, like, without kids, I couldn't imagine it. And, yeah, okay. like, I knew that it would, like, it was important. And that's why I knew I shouldn't have kids because I knew that I couldn't provide like that level of safety yeah, to them security, or, or yeah. like stability. Yeah. Um, So I knew it was important, but I just didn't get it. And then as soon as you have kids, you're like, oh, get it. Right? I yeah. get it. And um, so my first son Rip was born and then I was out of the army two weeks later. Uh, and like my discharge was in, like it was all, we timed it all, you know, like it was yeah, all perfect. Yeah, okay. yeah, um, awesome. And so, and then, you know, cause I left and uh, my wife's a tattoo artist. And so we sort of had this discussion at the time that she, she had a career and I was just going to work. Right. So like she had a career, she was, uh, you know, very, she's a really good tattooist. And at the time was sort of booked 12 months in advance. And we owned our own shop and shop. And it was like, okay, you're the one with a career and I'm going to be the one with a job. So she took, you know, six months off to like, cause you know, you kind of have to, yeah. but then she, the, the plan was she would get back to working full time. And I would just do odd jobs, training dogs here and there and contracting and doing all that kind of stuff. And so, mm. It was awesome. I spent, you know, the first year of my son's life, like with him all the time yeah, and, awesome. and home dadded it. Uh, yeah. and it was rad. Like I wouldn't change it for the mm. world. It was fantastic. And I think having raised heaps of puppies, right, it's like <laughs> the most high stakes puppy raising ever. And, and, and you know, really the problem that we have as dog trainers and stuff like that is really how deeply we understand conditioning and, um, behavior and stuff like that. And so Mm. that's a double edged sword because Mm. I've raised a lot of puppies and I didn't do a good job. And so that and you've got shit, it's high risk. You've really got to get it right. Um, yeah. So it's fun. I, I love it. I, I enjoy being a dad. I, I love my kids a lot and I enjoy the process and, and it's been fun to watch them develop. And now I've got a two, a second son, and that'll be it for us. But uh, the second one's like 18 months old and it's it's fun to kind of go through it again, more experienced and yeah, see yeah. You know, the things that really worried you in the past are like, ah, I know where this mm. goes, right? And, so do, you,
0: do you think it's easier or do you put more expectation on yourself to do a better job than the first one? No, nah, I
1: think it's easier. I think it's easier. Yeah. Because you just kind of like, ah, I know where this leads. And things that <laughs> yeah. would worry me so much with the first one don't worry me at all with the second because I know, like, I know where this goes. Mm. Um, And, you know, they're different. They, they're actually really different kids. Yeah. But just kind of, you know, like, you don't yeah. panic if, if he bites his lip, you know, like, you know what I mean? Just that, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it, I don't know. For me, it, it, it's good. Like I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. I enjoy being a father a lot. Um, it's stressful. It, it, it definitely limits the opportunities of things that I would do for myself. It's, mm-hmm. it's radically life changing, but I think for me, it has turned out to be a really good decision. I'm really glad that I did it. Yeah. I really love my kids. I, I'm, um, really proud of who they are. And, you know, it's interesting, like you, 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 like having, like I say, knowing so much as I do about behavior and how to control it, mm. that's a really tricky thing when you know that, like, you kind of have to use that wisely. Yeah. And, and there's things that you I'm learning about dogs that I'm learning from developing kids because like kids can tell you how they feel about something. Whereas a dog, you can just kind of read their body language. Right. So like. Mm. It, it's, it's fun. It's tricky, but it's fun.
0: What do you think your motivator would have been if you didn't have kids?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I really, uh, I think it would probably be a lot more egocentric, yeah. right? So uh, for me, the in the dog sports space, especially in the sort of competition biting um, dogs, we don't have much of that here. It's pretty limited in Australia. Mm. And so I think if I yeah. didn't have kids, something I would do for sure is immerse myself more in that. I would yeah. travel more. I would, I probably would have left Australia. I probably would be uh, in the US or Europe somewhere and I would be much more immersed in that. Like I, I would love to be a world champion. I would love to, mm. to do that. And there's just no way. Like first of all, I'm probably not good enough, right? But even if I were, even if I even if I had the skill set to do that, I don't have the support network of people that I would need to be able to do you. that. Right. Like I need yeah. the decoys, I need I need trainers as good as me to help me with certain things. I need all those yeah. sorts of bits and pieces that I don't have access to in Australia. Yeah. So I would have left. I think that if I didn't have kids, I would be in the US.
0: Yep. Yeah. I won't take up too much of your time, mate. So we'll um we'll wrap it up there, but uh, one last question do you have any advice to uh, I want to say dog trainers or parents that are struggling with a difficult dog or
1: child um, yeah I think uh, my advice is there's always a way out mm. right there's always there's always a, a an end like a, a happy ending to these things there's always some sort of um, way that you can bring on what you need to bring on, but it's going to usually involve some kind of compromise. You're going to have to change something. And so I think that when with dogs and I think with kids as well, when you're clashing heads, it's because both of you want for something that the, that is incompatible with the other. And so I think that you, you really have to realize that in order for the dog or the kid to change, you too will have to change. Something is going to have to shift. Mm. And that's what we see a lot of the times with people who are, you know, having really persistent issues with their dog is that there's an incompatibility issue between them and the dog. And they're asking only that the dog change. And in reality, they too probably need to make some changes and and sort of meet the dog in the middle. So that's, that's my advice. I think there's, if you're struggling with a dog, there's a way to fix it. There is a better path. There is a better position. You can be in a better position than you are now, but it's going to take change from both of you.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, awesome piece of advice there. Well, guys, if you stuck with us this, this long, we really appreciate it. I'm Andre from The Perfect Man Podcast. You can find me at The Perfect Man Podcast on Instagram. And Pat, please let our listeners know where they can find you online too.
1: Uh, you go to my website, it's operantkanine.com.au and from there there's links to everything. You can find everything from there. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, mate. It's been it's been fun.
0: No, awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Pat. Pleasure. Cheers.